please be seated. And as you're doing so, I do invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5. This morning we will be looking once again at 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 1 through 5. This will be our third and final week in this section that is ended up being a bit of a mini-series, if you will, in Peter's letter. Remember, his overwhelming goal in this um, book of 1 Peter is to encourage and strengthen the church to live faithfully during trying times. They were facing real difficulty, real hardship, real challenges, and Peter wanted them to have hope. And he wanted that hope to come from Jesus Christ himself. And in this section, the last two Sundays and this morning, we will see that it is vital as a church to receive that hope, to be very careful who it puts in leadership, not only who it puts in leadership, how they should lead. And then this morning in the third part of this series, not only who does God put in leadership, but not only how they should lead, but how should we as the church respond to their leadership. And this creates this beautiful symbiotic relationship where the leaders are leading by the hope and grace of Christ. The members are following by the hope and grace of Christ. Christ is glorified and the church flourishes. And by doing so, they are given hope and strength and the ability to endure trying times. And so with that in mind, I do want you to follow along with me as we read what has become a familiar passage for us. 1 Peter chapter 5. I'll read the first five verses. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder... And as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The grass may wither and the flower may fall, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. He has been gracious to us this day in that He has given us His word. Would you please go with me now to ask that he waters it and flowers it in our lives? Let us pray. Lord, you have told us in your word that if you do not open our eyes and our ears and soften our hearts, while we have heard your word this day, we will not believe it. We will not root it in our lives and let it transform us and change us. And so, Lord, I plea on behalf of your people today, change us. Change us, O Lord, that we would hear your word and receive your word and believe your word and live out your word to the glory of your name. Father, as we read this passage and discuss these truths this morning on what a church should be and how it should interact with its leadership, would you humble us all? And if nothing else, O Lord, from this time, would you grant us 
eyes to see our dependence and our need for you. I pray all of these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine, if you will, being tasked with carrying something, something of of great weight. Let's uh, call it one of the wooden uh, light poles, the old light poles. I know most of them are metal now, but let's think about the wooden ones for a moment. Typically, they weigh around 700 pounds. I didn't check any of this with Jim, so you can correct me after, but um, and they're typically around 30 feet in length, or at least that's what Google told me. So they're around 30 feet in length and around 700 pounds. You would quickly realize if that was a task of yours, if you were told to carry this thing, that I can't do this on my own. This is impossible for me. It is a task that cannot be done by myself. And so you and your wisdom, you convince six other friends, come, help me, I have a task for you. Share this work with me. And that's a reasonable thing to do, isn't it? All of a sudden, you go from having to bear the weight of 700 pounds of your, on your own to seven of you, which, if everything's mathematically equal, which it never is in life, reduces the weight down to about 100 pounds per person. Still not pleasant, but it would be doable. And imagine you have to carry this over a great distance. Let's call it 300 yards, three football fields in length. Every person who shoulders that log is important. But you have to be particularly careful about the person you put in the front. For not only is that person that you put in the front tasked with bearing their weight, one-seventh of the weight of the log, but they also have to look ahead. They have to pay attention. They have to be focused. They can't just tune out and, and do the work. They have to look because maybe there's a dip in the grass ahead. Maybe there's a need to turn to make a shift. Maybe there's a fence in your way. So they have to be ever watchful while also carrying this weight. This in a lot of ways is what church leadership is like. You cannot, nor should you, separate those being led and those leading. Or the pole does not get carried. Spiritually speaking, primary goals of the church, the worship of God and the sharing of the gospel. And we have spent a lot of time, two weeks, talking about the first four verses of this passage, which deal with the front man. That one that is looking ahead, that is watching out, that is making sure that the pathway is clear. But this morning, we need to spend some time talking about the six other members. The members of the church. For without them, again, the pole does not get carried. The work does not get done. We are all needed equally so. So looking in particular at verse 5 of our passage, we see three callings in response to what Peter has said about the elders. And 1 through 4, he's talked about the elders, who they are and what they must be and how they must lead. In verse 5, we see how we as a church must respond to that leadership. We're called in three ways. First, we are called 
to submit to our elders. Secondly, we are called to clothe ourselves with humility. And then thirdly, we are called to oppose pride and pursue grace. And each one of these is a reaction or a response to the leadership done rightly by those God has placed over us. And so this morning, I want us to walk through this verse, looking at these various responses and thinking about how it applies practically to us today. So would you follow along with me, beginning with the call to submit. And there's a few words we need to define even before we can do that. There's a word in particular here that that it should be jarring and calls us to stop. First word of verse 5. Likewise. In your translation, it may say, or in the same way. And with most things in the Bible, scholars debate the intended purpose of Peter right here. Some people believe that this is just a practical transition from verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you. And then he gets to verse 5. Likewise, those who are younger, to the intended result of, first I exhorted the elders, and now I exhort the church. And so it's this idea of, I'm going to exhort both parties. And I think there's some benefits to interpreting it that way. Another way of interpreting this word, transitional adverb is to see it as, I have exhorted the elders on who they are and how they should act and how their heart should be when they lead. And in the same way, or in a similar fashion, you as a church should act and be and serve and do. And so it's it's a follow them as they follow me. And I I think that there is credit from both parties. And as I often do, I, I think we take both of the answers. I do think this is an exhortation to the church. I think it's an exhortation to serve like, to follow like, to use the word in our passage, to submit like, the elders are called to follow and serve and submit. So much so that this, is, this in and of itself could have been a point. This could be a key tool to learning how churches should run. Elders should lead from the heart as examples under the guidance and leadership of Christ, verses 1 through 4. So, likewise... The church, members in the church, should follow from the heart, serve as examples for one another, being guided by the teaching and leadership of Jesus Christ. In a similar way, we should follow as they are called to lead. And I wanted to, to make this point, and I, I bring it up, because we don't want to create a disparity between those that lead and those that are led. This has very serious implications, whether you see it or not. Think about it in marriage. Wives are called to submit, same word, to their husbands, as in the Lord, Ephesians 5.22. If we ever get to the point where we go, those that are being led and those that are leading are two vastly different groups of people, then we have to say the same thing about marriage. And that will get you in a lot of trouble. I am the husband. I am to lead. You are the wife. You are to be led. I am greater. You are lesser. Remember, we're, you know, going back into the Matilda quote from last week. That does not work. That is not true. Husbands don't do that. 
But if that's not enough of a negative example, we actually get in even more trouble. When we read passages like John 5.19, where Jesus says, I submit myself to the will of the Father. And so if you're willing to take that chance on husbands and wives, are you willing to take it on Jesus? Are you willing to say that God the Father is greater and Jesus Christ is lesser because he chose to submit to him? I hope the answer is no. If you say yes, find me. We'll talk about why that's theologically terrible. Um, and it's not, it's not a good model. We must come to the conclusion, and, and I just I put this out there, submission does not equal value. Rather, submission is a sign of role or responsibility. Now that we have that clear, cleared up, we can look at what Peter says here. You who are younger, be subject or submit yourself to the elders. We've got another problem. This is the sermon of definitions. Does that mean that when I challenge you to live a certain way in light of the scriptures, it should be viewed differently than, let's say, if Elder Steve Campbell tells you to live a certain way in light of the scriptures. There are less of you that are younger than me than are younger than him, just mathematically speaking. And so do we look at this passage and go, let's find the oldest person in the room and tell them to tell us what to do, and then we just follow them because it covers everyone. No, that, that is silly to think that. Some people do think that, but it is very silly. Again, if we go back to our discussion that we had uh, two weeks ago in uh, chapter 5, verse 1, when we're talking about the word elder, it doesn't necessarily mean older, it can mean older. Here, when we talk about younger, it doesn't necessarily mean younger, although it can mean younger. Let me see if I can clarify this. One commentator says, Younger here most likely refers to the entire congregation, which is the contrast or opposite to the word elder. And if this interpretation is correct, younger is used, generally speaking, because the believers in the church the churches in Asia Minor that Peter's writing to, are younger. Now, Peter's word choice is really tough here. And I think he could have cleared himself up a little bit, and he should be rebuked for saying Paul's complicated, because Peter is equally so. But the reality of it is, Peter is writing to a bunch of churches that were just dispersed. They are reforming. They're under persecution. And it just so happens that the elders are older than most of the members. And so most likely, his word choice here is from that reason alone. And it's, it's meant more broadly to say elders and then everyone else. You're elder or you're younger. And so that's how we should think about this. Um, and it's to that group of people, which, and, and, and for sake of clarity, is you, the church. You're the younger here. Peter says, be subject or submit oneself to the elders. Now, that does not mean blindly follow those in leadership over you. Most certainly not. Please don't. In fact, I would tell you, you should always be trying to understand what we tell you, what we bring before you, what we speak on your behalf. You should always be searching the scriptures to make sure that it is right and that it is good and that it is accurate. 
You should always be checking us and following up with us while trusting in the leadership that God has placed over you. I can tell you that the process we have here for electing elders, your process um, from our mother church redeemer is beyond the process required by our book of church order. We add extra layers to determine who is qualified to lead because we want to be very careful that anyone we put in leadership will do this and do it well. Because we know that when we speak, we speak the voice of the church and we speak on your behalf. And so we want to just watch over and protect this role. And so you as a church have a responsibility to that. You submit, but you don't do it blindly. You submit in full understanding of God's word. Sometimes that submission will look differently, though. Sometimes it's not to correct the elders or to um, protect the office itself. But sometimes it may mean coming to the elders and working on sin in your life. One of the weightiest matters that we have in church leadership is administering church discipline. And it happens from time to time. It's a mark of a true church, a church that participates in discipline. But don't let that word scare you. Discipline is, is very similarly related to the word disciple. We would all say, hey, let's be discipled, but then you say, hey, let's be disciplined, and it's like, whoa, wait a minute, calm down, pastor, calm down. But sometimes in your life or the life of your family, it may be important to be disciplined by the church, and that is an act of correction Certain steps take place, certain processes. We have a checks and balances system for the sake of your soul, for restoration, for bringing you out of a state of sin, for bringing you out of a, a season of darkness and restoring you to good fellowship with the brethren. And that may mean going in there many, 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 many times. So I do ask, grant your elders the ability to pull you out of the mud when you're stuck. For if you're stuck in the mud and complaining, no one helped me, and then someone tries to come get you out, and you go, no, I'm good. You're still stuck in the mud. Submission looks a lot of different ways, depending on the circumstance. Sometimes it's submitting to them in their teaching. Sometimes it's submitting to them in their correction. And sometimes it means correcting them. I, I, I don't want to leave this point without stating that fact. We are sinners. We are sinners saved by grace, just like everyone here that is a sinner saved by grace. We will make mistakes. We will do wrong things. We will say foolish things. We will let our own pride get in the way. Just because we're elders doesn't mean that you need to like be afraid of that and, and you need to stay back and, and go, oh, they're an elder. We, we just need to let the Lord fix it. Well, you may be the one the Lord uses to fix it. Come to us, please. I, I encourage you. I, I beg you of that. And that's a way to submit to your elders by lovingly doing for them what they do for you. So our first church response or church reaction is to submit yourself to the elders. 
Now we need to turn to the second way that Christians are to act in light of this teaching on leadership, which is to clothe yourself with humility. Would you look with me um, to the middle part of verse 5? Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. And I love this idea here. If you just think about the word clothe, you may think about how on a Sunday I, I put on this robe. It sits in a rack back there. I put it on. I come and get ready. We, we conduct the service. We do everything. And then when I get ready to leave, I take it off. That's a way of clothing yourself. It's more a temporary thing. You may think of it like a winter coat. But if you, you look at the Greek here, something else is going on. This phrase is a combination of, of two words, um, N, E-N, and combo um, is the, the Greek root there, which literally means to not on a garment, and it gives the example of a slave sash or robe. And so it is not merely the idea of putting on something temporarily, of taking something on that can be taken off. But this word here, clothe yourselves, literally means to put on an identifying marker, such as a slave sash or robe, then taking a rope and knotting it to yourself so that it cannot be removed. It is saying to everyone, this is who I am. That's how we should be seen, dear Christians. We should be seen by the world as Christians who are marked by humility. When they look at us, they should see not only are we putting on the cloak of humility, but we're so scared of it getting off of us, we have tied it down in several places and we have lashed ourselves to this cloak so that it cannot escape us. And this is one of the ways that Christians or the church should act toward its leadership. It should act in humility. It should be humble. It should look for the best in someone. It should take their words for the best meaning. When there's confusion or when things are misunderstood or when feelings are hurt, it should go and look for an answer. But let's be clear here. Peter's not just saying this toward the church. He's saying it very clearly here. Clothe yourself, all of you. And so he's returned back to his original conversation. Elders, you too must clothe yourselves with humility toward those in your flock. When they sin and when you're in the mud again and you're up to your knees in it, you get them out again in love. When they stumble, when you get that 8 p.m. phone call after dinner, you answer that phone. When that struggle happens, when that hardship comes, when that difficult task arises, you pick up the phone, you get in the car, you go and you deal with it in humility. No one escapes this characteristic here. The church and leaders, all of you, clothe yourselves, tie it to you, lash it to yourself. So that the world will see that we are humble people. Why? Because that's how Jesus treats all of us. Over and over and over. Forgiving that sin. And we all have those sins. Where we find ourselves going, here I am again, God. I know I said last time was the last time, but I'm back. 
Will you forgive me? And what does God do? Of course I will forgive you. And then the next 10 times, what does he do? Of course I will forgive you. And you find yourself that 11th time thinking you finally got victory over it. And it comes back again. And you're going to God. And I don't even want you to forgive me because I don't forgive myself. And I don't deserve this. And what does he do? Of course I will forgive you. Do we go to the sinner or the one who has wronged us seven times? No, I say 70 times seven Over and over and over, our Savior comes to us and forgives us and picks us up and dusts us off. And he goes to the lowest of the low. He goes to those places. Look at the people that he ministered to. Look at the people he associated himself with. We act in humility because our Savior humbled himself. I I love this book. I'm, I'm quoting it too much, but... Book on leadership I'm reading by Paul Tripp. It's called Lead. He says in there, the church is going to be difficult and it is often going to be messy. God does not put perfect people together to run a perfect church. God puts imperfect people together so that he is glorified and through our failures, we're taught apart from his strength in our lives and the lives of our brothers and sisters, we will not make it. I didn't get a chance to mention that this morning if you were in our Meet the Pastor class, but we're not perfect here. If that's what you're looking for, good luck. We are not perfect. In fact, we are so imperfect, God uses that to reveal it to ourselves and to others. And I was really convicted this past week looking at this point and thinking about it from the church perspective and from the elders' perspective. When is the last time we've said, thank you, God, that you made me imperfect and surrounded me with imperfect people? That, that thought right there, that, that, when that came to mind, it, it nearly broke me. God, you've put messy people in my life, as I myself am a messy person, to show me how much I need you. And even worse, you've put me in leadership. So when I mess up, it's very public. And it directs and guides you, the church. And God's response is, of course I did. Of course I did. All throughout Scripture. Go to the Hall of Faith. Look in Hebrews, Hebrews 11. Look at any of those men. Pick one. Murderers, adulterers, sinful men, failures. Claim their wives, what in their wives. So you name it on that list. They've all done awful things. And what are they? They are children of faith. Children of God who were faithful unto the end. They're called, well done, my good and faithful servants. Because they were perfect? No. Because they submitted themselves to God and humbled themselves before Him. If we want a church here in Lee Summit, if we want Christ the Redeemer to honor God and to glorify His name, then we need leaders and we need church members who are humble. I I tell you this in all confidence. I may not know why, but God has called each one of you here today. Even if you're visiting with us, even if this is the only Sunday we see you, you are here today according to God's plan for his specific purpose today, right now. I don't know what that'll look like tomorrow. I don't know what that'll look like a week from now or a month from now. But I can tell you, he has called you here for your good and for his glory. And let me just, before we leave this point, let me say, it's when we do this more than anything else. I've found in my life and I've found in my ministry When we are humble, when we admit our mistakes, 
When we admit our failures, when we ask for forgiveness, when we say, I need your help, when we say, I cannot do this, when we say, I am not strong enough, when we say, I don't have the answers, and we do that together as a church, as a community, as a body of believers, leadership and church members alike, we become a gospel lighthouse to the world, a beacon that says, no, we're not perfect people. You don't like church because it's full of hypocrites? Well, you're not wrong. It is. You don't like church because they're a bunch of sinners? You're not wrong. It is. And when you come and look at us in our hypocritical nature and you come and look at us in our sinful nature, I don't want you to conclude, boy, that's a terrible place. I want you to conclude, boy, that's a great Savior. That's a great God they serve. Don't look at the people because we're a mess, but look at the God they serve. He's perfect. He's good. And he works all things out for his glory. The world doesn't teach that. The, the, the world teaches a model of the only way I can win is if you lose. And the worse your loss is, the better my win is. That cannot be the model for us as a church. Tie it to you. Make it who you are. Let everyone know that I am a Christian, a Christian who seeks to practice in humility. And then our third calling today as a church as we respond to this idea of what true leadership looks like. As we think about humility and think about submission, the only place we can conclude is to pursue God's grace and flee from any forms of pride. You look at the conclusion of this verse to see it. Be humble, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you look at your quotation there, Peter is quoting from Proverbs 3.34. This verse, Proverbs 3.34, is also quoted by James in James 4.6. And if we go back to the section of Scripture that Peter is quoting from, this is a chapter on the benefits of pursuing wisdom. Really, you could overarch the first whole section of Proverbs. Really, you could say the whole book of Proverbs is about pursuing wisdom in various areas in our life. And in Proverbs chapter 3, wisdom is held up as more precious than gold, more precious than silver, and more beautiful and more to be desired than jewels. We're told that there are benefits to pursuing it. That there are blessings from God for looking for it in our lives. We're warned. We're warned that there is foolishness to following the world in this way. And that there are punishments or curses, the opposite of the good. There are the negatives. Not being gracious and to pursuing pride. I love Proverbs 3.33. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. And so if we take the context that Peter's quoting from and apply it again to our passage, Peter is saying that to follow the Lord and to follow his commandments will lead to the blessing of God's people. While ignoring them, while turning away from them, will lead to God's judgment. Now that does not mean... If we obey our elders and follow the teaching of Scripture, we will have health, wealth, and prosperity. Our church will grow and we'll never face anything difficult at all. As we talked about last week, that's not the gospel. And it's not true. 
Peter is writing to Christians actively dying for their faith. They're losing their lives. And to, to them, to those that are suffering, he says, keep on suffering. Keep on losing. Keep on letting the world take from you because you have an eternal reward that is greater. Pursue God's grace. His undeserved favor shown upon sinners who did not earn it, nor did they deserve it. And this is the attitude that he, he concludes this section and he implores us, the church, to take in our lives. God is gracious to the humble. His grace, His undeserved favor is poured out upon us. And so we too should be gracious to one another. Thinking the best of each other. Always trying to understand before accusing. Being quick to demonstrate love as love covers a multitude of sins. And rightly so, we find ourselves at the bottom. As we've plumbed the depths of this passage, and even that is not a true statement because we could spend the rest of eternity plumbing the depths of this passage, but at least in three weeks we've got a good taste of it. What do we find at that ground level? We find Jesus. Again, we come back to the Savior because He was gracious, because He was humble, because He submitted Himself, spending 33 years on this earth, dependent upon food, dependent upon clothing, dependent upon shelter and the care of others. When for an eternity prior, He had 10,000 angels at His command that, that in utterance of His word, they would come down and they would take charge and they would answer His questions and, and care for His needs and provide anything He asked to, to the point that Jesus was homeless. Do we think about that? That Jesus needed others to feed him. He caught a fish once to pay his own taxes. Our Savior became the, the, the mark of humility, the mark of submission, the mark of grace. And he lived that out before us. And then he willingly gave himself up on the cross. Giving up of his own life. For the sake of sinners. That is grace. And that's how we must relate to one another. I hope this mini-series has been an encouragement to you, dear brothers and sisters. I most certainly have been humbled by it. And in a lot of ways, I think that if it does nothing for us other than humble us, that's okay. For it's done its intended effect. It should drive you to God and ask for His mercy. It, it, it should cause you to want to plea with Him for the sake of your leaders. It should cause you to want to pray for one another. It should cause you to want to see this church grow and flourish. Not for numbers sake, not for us to have nicer things, but because he is worth it. I want to conclude this morning and this series, this mini-series, with a comment that was made to me yesterday in a beautiful memorial service for a saint who has gone to be with the Lord, Jim Sorgan husband of Marlene, I was talking with the speaker yesterday and he had told me that he had been in the area since the 70s and I, he asked about our church and where we are located. And I told him and he got a chuckle out of that and he said, do you know what that plot of land historically was used for? No, I have no idea. I'm not from here. Hey, that used to be where they kept sheep. 
And then he chuckled again, as, as pastors are, ought to do, and he said, isn't it funny? God hasn't changed the purpose of that land in 50 years. God is still shepherding his sheep at 1800 Northeast Independence Avenue. Would you pray with me that in 50 years from now, at another funeral, at a wedding, at a service, at a gathering of people, somebody's getting together and laughing. Did you know that 1800 North Independence Avenue used to be a plot of land for sheep? In a hundred years, God hasn't changed the purpose of it. That will only happen by his mercy and by his grace. By calling godly men to lead us. By submitting ourselves to that leadership and serving one another through the strength that Christ provides. By his example. And hoping for the day to come in which he comes back and makes all things new. Until then, let us pray. Lord, I ask that as our prayer here and now. We have studied this passage on what a leader should be, how we as a church should act toward those in leadership, and ultimately that both parties, leaders and those led, need you. We need Christ, his example, his teaching, his love, his forgiveness. We need the power of forgiveness. We need your divine wisdom and your divine plan and your sovereignty over all things. Lord, we're all a bunch of sheep. We need a faithful shepherd. Would you, O oh Lord, it is my, my plea before you, would you continue to use this plot of land to shepherd sheep for the next 100, 200, 300 years till Christ returns? May you continue to shepherd your sheep here at Christ the Redeemer. We need you, O oh Lord. Be with us now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.